Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 6. It's a very odd chapter break in the English versions of the Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, verses 1 to 7 of our chapter 6 are included at the end of chapter 5. So our Leviticus 6.1 is their Leviticus 5.20. And their arrangement makes a lot more sense. The first seven verses of our chapter 6 actually serve as the conclusion of the section on guild offerings. And then in verse 8, it begins a new section in the book dealing with the role of the priests in the giving of these various offerings already discussed. R.K. Harrison explains that transition saying, In chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 7, the ritual prescriptions are described from the standpoint of the person making the offering. Whereas in chapter 6, verse 8, through chapter 7, verse 36, the narrative considers the various sacrifices as the priests have to deal with them, close quote. So in a sense, the next two chapters are telling the same story, but from a different perspective. So as we would expect, there's some overlap and some additional content. This is a behind-the-scenes look, as it were, as we revisit the sacrifices we've already discussed from the perspective of those working and serving inside the tabernacle complex. That movement is somewhat obscured by the chapter divisions in English, but once you know that, I think it is reasonably easy to visualize what's taking place here. But before we get to that next part of the story, we need to deal with this last orphan paragraph in our English versions, dealing with the guilt offering. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. As I mentioned, this material really ought to have been presented along with the material in chapter 5, as it is in the Hebrew Bible. These seven verses deal with a situation wherein a person has lied under oath about an item placed in his care as a deposit, or about an item missing from among his neighbor's possessions, or about an item he found and wrongly took possession of for himself. He was asked about it, and under oath, he swore that he was not guilty when, in fact, he was. Now, the assumption is that some days or weeks later, he begins to feel the weight of his own guilt. Perhaps he started to feel the effects of God's curse. We talked about this in the last chapter. God is peculiarly involved in the life and circumstances of Israel. 
He is telling a story in and through their life and experiences as a people. He was teaching them, and he was teaching the nations of the world through them. So Israel's judicial process was alive with the presence of God. And if a person swore by God's name, then he had trespassed against the holiness of God and incited the righteous anger of God. And so this offering was intended to give the offending party a way out from under that. He could come forward voluntarily and admit what he had done. He would need to restore the property in question, obviously, and he would need to add a fine of one-fifth the value of the property on top of that. And then, and only then, could he bring his ram to the priest as a guilt offering. Notice that. You had to make appropriate restitution first. Don't come to God and ask forgiveness while you still have your neighbor's property in your garage. That's what the text is saying here. And Jesus, of course, said the same thing in Matthew 5, 23 to 24. He said, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Principle here is that if we want to be right with God, then we have to be right with our neighbors as well. Make things right with the neighbor. Then come and make things right with God. Real religion is nowhere near as private as many modern-day Christians seem to think that it is. God, in this passage before us, presents himself as the protector of our neighbor's property. So he will not be at peace with the worshiper until the worshiper is at peace with his neighbor. This is not just an Old Testament thing. We see this in the New Testament, too. The Apostle Peter says to husbands, don't even bother praying to God if you're being mean to your wife. He's not going to listen to you. That's in 1 Peter 3. And so the idea is the same. God is the protector of our neighbor. God is the protector of our wives. And so we have to be right with our fellow man or our fellow woman if we want to be right with God. Verse 8. Now we're moving into the next section, the section zooming in on the responsibilities of the priests. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Now, I've mentioned that there's a lot of repetition in this upcoming section. We're going to hear about offerings and rituals we've already been introduced to, but this time from the perspective of the priests. And so as we go over this ground again, new details and new instructions are going to be given. The JPS commentary and translation does a fabulous job of helping the English reader pick up on the change of focus. It translates the strange Hebrew syntax in the second half of our English verse 9 in this way. The burnt offering itself shall remain where it is burned upon the altar all night until the morning. So the focus here is zoomed in on the sacrifice itself, not the ritual, not the experience of the worshiper, but the animal, the, the bird or the grain itself. In this section, we are talking about what the priests would need to do with the sacrifice itself. Everything, of course, had to be handled very carefully. Everything had to be done according to rule. That's what this is. We pick up the narrative at verse 10. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. 
The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. All right, as mentioned before, the burnt offering was a daily offering. In fact, it was a twice-daily offering. The first offering to go on the altar every morning was the burnt offering. And then the last offering to go on the altar every evening was the second burnt offering, the sifra. This second burnt offering, the evening offering, was to be left burning on the altar overnight. And then first thing in the morning before the new offering, the ashes had to be collected and disposed of according to rule. So the priest had to get dressed. This is not something you could do in your bathrobe and slippers. You had to be properly attired. He then took up the ashes. Then in verse 11, we're told he had to take off his garments and put on other garments in order to go outside. Exodus 28, 43 forbade the wearing of the priestly vestments outside the precincts of the sanctuary. So he had to robe up to begin the process, and then he had to change costume in the middle of the act. The disposal site for the ashes was outside the sanctuary precinct, so he had to have on his outside uniform for that part of the process. When he came back in, he would change again, and he would then add new wood to restoke the fire so that it was cleaned and ready now to receive the morning offering. That was the ritual with respect to the offering itself. Verse 14, And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar, and one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering, and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. So here we're learning a new detail that was not explicitly mentioned in chapter 2 when we first heard about the grain offering. Now we're being told that it is very important for the priests, the sons of Aaron, to eat a portion of the sacrifice that is being offered. It is not just that they may, it is that they must. Moses will actually rebuke Aaron and his sons in Leviticus 10, 17 for not eating their priestly portion. We'll get to that when we come to that part of the story. But the point is that the priests eating their portion was not just an allowance, it was an integral part of the ritual itself. It was intended to communicate acceptance. By the way, that logic is embedded in our Christian understanding of the resurrection. Worshippers need to know that the sacrifice made on their behalf has been accepted by God. When Jesus rose from the dead, that too was intended to communicate acceptance. The bodily resurrection was God's public assurance that the payment had been received and accepted. Like when you put your debit card in the machine and you enter your PIN, you're waiting for a few seconds for that glorious message, payment accepted, please remove card. That's the message of the empty tomb. And that too is the message when the priests eat of their portion. 
If the priest can eat of it, then it must be considered holy and pleasing to the Lord. That's the idea. This basic logic and attendant process applies to the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. All of these offerings are categorized here as most holy. That means that only the priest may eat of the sacrifice itself. No portion of this sacrifice is returned to the worshiper, as in the case of the peace offering. These most holy sacrifices must be eaten inside the tabernacle complex. Again, further indicating that this is part of the ritual itself. Verse 18 seems to indicate that whoever touches these ritual portions becomes holy. The holiness of the portion is contagious in that sense. However, this has been a matter of discussion in both Jewish and Christian circles for centuries. The Hebrew syntax here could also mean simply that whoever touches it must be holy, as in the person must be a priest who is properly ordained, consecrated, and prepared. In which case, verse 18 is simply saying the same thing that was already said in verse 16. It is clear that the confusion around this verse and this concept goes back to the Old Testament era itself. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, there is a question asked about this very thing, about the extent of contagion by mere contact with consecrated things. There, in that passage, the concept of contagion is limited. So, this was a live discussion, even back in Old Testament times. Regardless of how that argument eventually settles, if it ever settles, the main point here is that extreme care must be exercised around these sacrificial portions. This is not merely the priest's salary. In fact, he couldn't even take these items home to share with his family. This is part of the ritual. And here we see something of God's care for the hearts and souls and consciences of his worshipers. You can hear the God of 1 John 1, 9 behind this little piece of Old Testament liturgy. Just like the Apostle John wanted his people to, to know that they were forgiven and they were cleansed, that they were righteous in God's sight, so too John's God here. Assurance matters. And the concern for assurance has been carefully woven into the instructions and protocols governing the ritual portions. Thanks be to God. Verse 19, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the offering that Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Now, here, interestingly, we have a sacrifice not mentioned in the first five chapters. This is a new one. But we find it here because it relates specifically to the priesthood itself. This is the grain or cereal offering of the priests. It was to be offered on the day of their anointing but then also every day subsequent to that. The amount was a tenth of an ephah of fine flour, or an omer. That was the exact amount that the Lord commanded the people to gather of the manna when they were wandering in the desert. In Exodus 16, verse 16, God said, Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. 
So an omer, which is a tenth of an epha, became synonymous with our daily bread. This was a way for the priesthood to acknowledge that their living and substance came from the Lord. The key aspect of this particular sacrifice is that it was to be burned in full. The priest did not receive a portion. Uh, Baruch Levine says here, This affirms the rule that priests could benefit only for services undertaken on behalf of other Israelites, not on their own behalf. When the offering served only the priests themselves, the usual share of the priests had to be surrendered to God. Closed quote. Pick up the story in verse 24. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten. In the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken, but if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it, it is most holy, but no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. I mentioned earlier in this episode that much of the material in this section parallels the content found in chapters 1 through 5. Only now we are learning about these sacrifices from the perspective of the priests who are performing the rituals. So here we are learning about the sin offering that we first heard about in chapter 4. I mentioned in that episode that the sin offering was about pollution. It seeks to address the barriers that arise because of our foolish and careless actions that would threaten our intimate communion with God if not properly dealt with. As indicated in chapter 4, there were different offerings used depending upon whose sin was being addressed. The offering itself was to be treated as most holy, meaning that no portion of it was returned to the worshiper. The priests must eat a portion of it, we see that in verse 26, unless the sin offering was of a kind wherein the blood was brought into the tent of meeting. Again, you have to go back to chapter 4 to understand that. In chapter 4, we talked about how the key to understanding the symbolism was found in paying attention to the subtle differences in the ritual associated with the various sacrifices. If the sin being addressed had been committed by the anointed priest, then the blood from the sacrifice would actually have to be sprinkled seven times on the veil of the Holy of Holies. The same ritual was prescribed in cases of sin involving the whole congregation, as per chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. However, if the sin being addressed was one committed by a tribal leader or by a common person, that part of the ritual did not take place. So when chapter 6, verse 30 says that the priest must eat a portion of the sin offerings but must not eat those where the blood was brought into the tent of meeting, he is being told that he cannot eat of the portion of any sacrifice that was for his own sins, either his sins as an individual or his sin as part of the congregation as a whole. Again, a priest could only benefit from services undertaken on behalf of another. These final verses also contain some instructions as to how to deal with garments stained by blood from the sacrifices and vessels used to carry the blood. Garments should be cleaned, and if the vessel can't be properly cleaned, it should be destroyed. 
I love what Andrew Bonner says here. He says, how awful is atoning blood? Now, in today's English, we would say how awesome. Either way, how awesome, how awful is atoning blood? Even things without life, such as garments, are held in dreadful sacredness if this blood touches them, closed quote. How much more, then, the atoning blood of Christ? And how much more the effect of that blood upon the life and the worth of men and women? As the old song says, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.